Are you always one of those guys? I am always one of those guys. <laughs> no matter what those is, I'm probably one of those guys. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, a leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. Over 1,000 organizations trust CodeClimate to help improve quality and security in their Ruby apps. Get 50% off your first three months for being a Rogues listener by starting a free trial this week. Go to rubyrogues.com slash CodeClimate. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 132 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. So I just talk into this can at the end of this string you handed me? Yep. We also have David Brady. I can neither confirm nor deny the existence of a one-time pad. Josh Susser. Uh, I, I think I, I I can't use these semaphore flags. What are, How do they work? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Steve Klabnik. Hey everybody. A witty saying proves nothing. So you've been on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself, since you haven't been on for a while? Totally. Uh, hi everybody, I'm Steve. I write lots of codes in various things, mostly Ruby at this point. I've been doing a lot of work over the last couple of years, teaching, working on Rails, uh, writing books, designing APIs, tweeting too much, getting really angry on the internet. Yeah, like lots of that. And keep it up. Yeah, I try. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, somebody's angry on the internet? And wrong. There's lots of wrong people, and it's really easy to get mad at them for being wrong. Who's the most wrong person on the internet? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can say that. Okay. I was going to say, this isn't a political or religious podcast, so uh, <laughs> in the interest of keeping our clean rating. Since, yeah, I mean, but since we were going to talk about secrecy today anyway, that also makes sense. I'll, I'll keep that information redacted. <laughs> yeah. nice. There we go. A big, long bleep. Yeah. So we're, Steve, we're talk- you gave us a scary talk at Gogoruko. What was that about? Yeah, so um, I one of the interesting things about conferences is that whenever you pitch to a conference, it's months before the conference actually happens. And so one of the things I've enjoyed doing as I've been like trusted by conference organizers to speak more um, is I tell them, like, oh, we'll just figure it out closer to the conference. And then that way I can come up with something that's much more topical. So... Josh, uh, you know, since we are friends, decided to entrust me in this way. And then it was shortly before the conference. We're like, okay, we do need to figure out what I should talk about now. And the NSA leaks had been all over the media recently. And I'm one of the people who's been like talking about this topic. So we decided to, that I would do a talk on that stuff. Since, you know, every, every Ruby conference has tons of non Ruby talks as well. So this is sort of more just like a, you know, we are the people who build these systems. We should be thinking about the implications of the stuff that we build. And so in that talk, I like, put together um, some information about the history of surveillance, 
some stuff about um, certain software systems that we can use to help present, prevent ourselves from being surveilled, and then a little uh, jab at how hard these things are to use towards the end. So that's sort of the summary of, of the talk. I, I think you should come give that talk in Bluffdale, Utah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. For anybody who does not know, in the middle of Utah, the NSA, uh, is it the NSA? I think it's the NSA. Some three-letter yeah. agency of the government has been building this massive, massive uh, data center that is going to be able to hold the next 100 years of information produced on the Internet, even yeah. taking into account our current rate of growth of producing information on the Internet. Yeah, it's like a multi-petabyte or an exabyte. Wow. Of data, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really um, massive and excessive and slightly terrifying. I, I'm um, just angry that it slows down my bit torrents. <laughs> well, they got to copy all those bits, too, so it's going to take twice as long to copy all those bits, right? That's how that works. You know, if, if they would offer a caching service, we would line up to fund them. Yeah, so people would right? like archive.org. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, <laughs> they're going to end up with all the porn in the world, and we could just get it from them, and it would be so much faster. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this is actually an interesting side effect talking about like keeping track of all the porn. Like one of the things about this privacy situation that people don't know is like, you know, everyone does dumb things when they're a teenager, right? And so if you like send a risque photo to your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, you know, via like, I'll just say Snapchat, even though Snapchat is not for that kind of thing, um, because everybody like laughs about it being so. One of the weird implications of this new world is like that photo of you when you think it's going to go away is actually going to be stored forever and ever into the future. Right, so that's like one of the parts of these changing social norms um, involved in this kind of surveillance stuff. So you remember, I, how, you remember how when we were in in like high school, and the principal would threaten us with having something go on our permanent record. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very Fer Ferris Bueller moment, right? But the, so I mean, now we actually have a permanent record that matters, that things can go on, but it's not something your principal can threaten you with. It's kind of the other way around, right? Right. And people change over time, right? So, like, you guys know I care a lot about these social justice issues, but, like, frankly, I used to be really freaking terrible about them. Like, there was a time when I thought being gay was immoral. So, like, if if the personal record of everything I'd ever said um, had been, like, kept forever, it would be very easy for people to, like, dig up me saying a bunch of terrible things in my past because, you know, I have grown and learned and changed over time. And so one of the weird things about this idea of, like, a permanent record of stuff is that it doesn't account for the fact that humans are very different as our lives go on and go forward, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there, there's also uh, like our, you know, our judgment in general improves as we as we learn and experience more. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I love uh, seeing people. <laughs> okay, so so we we all have the potential to, right, <laughs> to learn and have our judgment improve. Some people don't take advantage of it, but uh, yeah, Thank I mean you. I. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know I, I've I've said some pretty ridiculous things it, about programming, uh, you know, as recent as twenty years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I really liked in your talk, Steve, was you at one point you talk about people who say I've got nothing to hide, which was so funny because that was so me going into your talk. That's I, I would say that I have nothing to hide, and you said that that means I'm underinformed on this issue. Which I liked. Why do you yes. say that? So the, the reason I say that is because even if you don't have something to hide, uh, the details around what you do can form a story that's very different than what actually happens. 
So um, an example for my talk, I use this hypothetical situation where let's say that um, a, a, you have just the phone records. So one of the things from these various NSA scandals was that they had access to all of the metadata about phone calls. So metadata being data about data. So they don't have the actual details of the phone conversation, but they have, in some cases they do, but in this case, for, the, for this purposes, let's just assume that all they know is who you called and at what time. So with those two bits of information, if I told you that a woman called a man that she works with a couple of times during the day and then went to a doctor's office that, uh, you know, did women's healthcare services and then she called that man again and then called her husband and then called her mother and then called an abortion clinic, you would have a like mental model of a story of what happened in your head, even though that may not be the story that actually happened. So like, you know, one alternate scenario is that she found out that her daughter um, had gotten pregnant and needed those kinds of abortion services. And she was like calling the father of the person who got, got her daughter pregnant, right? So the story can be something that's totally different than what you actually do. And it can look really, really damning. Um, or even if you don't have anything to hide in, in some senses, like, especially when you start talking about people who do not have privilege, um, it's very difficult. So like, for example, there are many places in the United States today, um, including a recent story I heard from someone in New York City about getting beat up if you were gay, right? So even if you may be like not wanting to hide that aspect of your personality, if you're a teenage kid in some place where that's not acceptable and uh, the metadata shows this image that you're gay, which is the thing that happens, and that comes out, it can have very negative consequences for your life, and that's like really dangerous, right? So. Uh, it doesn't actually matter if you're doing anything moral or immoral. People have privacy reasons for like a variety of things. Um, My wife has had that almost exact day happen to her, and she was a billing clerk for a medical insurance company. So, I mean, she went to the doctor, and she picked up the billing information, and she went to the abortion clinic and picked up the billing information. Right. So, I mean, it's a completely different day. Absolutely. So you don't have yep. this complete picture of what goes on and it can be, it can be scary. And then when it's there forever to be dug up at any period of time, like, I always think whenever they, whenever they interrogate someone on the cop shows, right, they're like, where were you the night of the 17th at 6 p.m.? And I'm like, I don't remember what happened last <laughs> week, man. I can't tell you where I was at that particular time, <laughs> right? And so when you have this like massive database of facts, right? Because part of this is also is that we implicitly trust that computers have the true and accurate facts about the world, which is a whole other like can of worms, right? But when you have this like, well, we have a database with the logs and it says at this time period, you went and did this thing. Did you? And you're like, how are you supposed to like say no or maybe or, you know, like it's very different. So it, isn't there a feature on the iPhone for that now? <laughs> yeah. It'll, yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll just tell you where you were at what time. Um, I think well, so. Uh, so I think the, um, you know, you've got nothing to worry about if you've got nothing to hide attitude is interesting to compare to what all of, what the government itself and what corporations are pushing forward, which is more secrecy and more ability to protect what they're up to. And you contrast that with that, you know, individuals were losing our private privacy and our ability to uh, protect our personal information. Yes, there's sim simultaneously the Edward Snowden is like the most terrifying person in the universe because he can see all of the secrets. But when the government wants to see the secrets, it's totally cool and harmless and we shouldn't worry about it. You know, it's like there's definitely some sort of weird uh, non-consistency there. It's not weird and inconsistent. It's terrifying. Right. It's, yes, it's control it. fraud. <laughs> Pe people in power 
are seeking to increase their privacy and their ability to wield that power, and people who are out of power are losing secrecy and their ability to avoid being controlled by the people in power. Why are we not crapping our pants over this? Yeah, I, I just laugh at, like, I'm enjoying the fact that I'm not the one that's going all super intense about this. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's a problem. It's super hard. It's super hard to get people to care. Well, one other thing that I find is interesting about this discussion is the fact that you're saying that problems arise from there being incomplete data. And instead, I think a lot of people freak out because maybe the government is hearing and recording everything. So not, not just that, uh, you know, they're keeping track of when you made the call and who you called and how long it lasted and where you were when you made the call. But, you know, people freak out because they assume that the government has the phone call or, you know, has the location data where you were all the time off of your iPhone. And it, it it's kind of interesting the, the, the different ways that people worry about this, where some of them are just like, well, if they have any information, then, then, then that's bad. And other people worry that they have all the information and that that's bad. Right. It also depends on what your aims are too, right? So for those of us of the persuasion that our government is mostly in the wrong and probably should be significantly altered, that is, you know, a statement of threats. So therefore we do worry about full plans because like, you know, um, sometimes the things that we do, like, I mean, everyone breaks, one of the other things that ties in with this too is that like, there, I've read, um, I think the statistic is like two felonies a day that like you commit, every single person in the States commits two felonies a day. Yeah, yeah, that's heard, an average. Yeah, I'm, I'm carrying a lot of people. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> right, so Just like, two? It's, it's really impossible to know all of the laws that you are actually bound by and what the implications of that laws are. And once you start getting into like international treaties and like all these other things, you know, like nobody's a domain expert um, other than lawyers in law. And so it's, it's unreasonable to expect that we are able to know all the laws that apply to us. And it's impossible to follow all of them because a lot of them are contradictory because they're made by humans and humans are, you know, not exactly super consistent. So it's, it's like very, very difficult, right? So for example, let's just even take California, right? So you can be doing something. Uh, medical marijuana, which is like totally legal under California state law, but is illegal at the federal level. But Obama has said that he's not going to prosecute normal people that are doing it. So you're kind of safe, probably. Like you know, as long so as this you qualify weird... as a normal people, uh-huh. exactly right. <laughs> so it's like this really Kafka esque situation where you can't actually know all the things that you're doing wrong, and you can't actually know what the, all the punishments are. And it's basically until like the eye of Sauron like looks at you that you then like can have all this stuff dug up. Right. And since we've sort of normalized this idea that like everyone, I know we haven't necessarily normalized it, but I mean, since everyone breaks laws continually and that's just like a thing, you know, we now that's like a norm, right? Like nobody's going to say you're a bad person for speeding, for example. Right. And maybe there's some people that do, but I've never found anyone who is not like sped occasionally while driving. Right. But if you then like have this record of speeding over time and then in the future you become interesting, now you have this wealth of back history. Right. So. Um, that's like a big problem. And like the eye of Sauron, that gets into the notion of like selective enforcement, where if you have ubiquitous surveillance and a government that is biased towards one group, we could go after, uh, you know, let's just turn the stress of the call up a notch. We could go after all the gay people or we could go after all the Mormons. Hey, why not? Let's pick a side, right? And we could just selectively enforce them and basically right. say, here's all the times you were speeding we're going to revoke your driver's license. Bam. All of the gays and all the Mormons are now walking. And Absolutely. 
everyone we, we 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 could basically put the entire country on its feet instead of you know just one or two groups but we choose which group we want we decide that edward snowden is a criminal and then we go get the evidence because we've got evidence on everyone now right um, it's important to stress that biases like that don't have to be conscious decisions, right? We have right. tons of documentation about how all of us carry around these biases that are just, you know, programmed into us because of where we grew up or things like that. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the other side of the conversation is, you know, you know, there, there's always like a cost-benefit analysis in these things. And if the the benefit that we were getting from all of this surveillance was it was actually making things better significantly, then I think it would be um, a different conversation to have. Right. Yeah, but but nobody can actually point at any of this surveillance and say that it's having a positive effect, that it's actually making people safer or catching criminals or preventing terrorism. Right. You can only make that statement in a very broad way. You can't point to any specific incidents. Um, mm -hmm. And as ridiculous as, like, well, let's give all the gays and Mormons speeding tickets, like, Engel is, you do have to remember that, like, it was only the 1940s that we literally rounded up all the Japanese people and threw them into camps, right? So, like, our, our government has done things very similar to that in the past. Like, we suspect that you are conspiring with an opposing government. Therefore, uh, you know, we're going to throw you in a camp. Um, well, that like, was okay, though, because they were bad guys. Right, exactly. But that's like, yeah, and I know what you're saying. Yeah, but, but it's yeah. just like, but also not, it's not conspiracy theory level to suggest that specific groups of people may be targeted by the government and have really shitty things yeah. done to them. I mean, just look what we do to Muslims right now, right? So, yeah. Well, and the they're, so they're to... the bad guys thing, I mean, it really does. I mean, look at the recent uh, government shutdown. I mean, depending on which side you're on, you're really angry at the other side. And, right. you know, because they wouldn't compromise on something that was obviously, you know, good and, and, and okay. And so, you know, who's to say that, yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to target that group because they generally uh, sympathize with our, our political rivals. In defense of, uh, you know, our government, sort of, like, I do think they are in a incredibly challenging position, like, as citizens, we expect them to stop things like terrorist threats and stuff right. like that, right? And um, we just assume that they do that. But, you know, it, we also tie their hands in some ways. Like, you know, well, okay, but you can't invade anybody's privacy when you're doing it, you know, or, or whatever. Which makes it really hard, you know, because you have to have lots of information in order to know what's coming or whatever. So I, I think I understand how things like this come about, you know, like how, how you end up in this scenario. But at the same time, like once you're there, it's hard not to see the ridiculousness of it, you know, of, of something like grabbing the metadata off of all the phone calls or something like that. You know, It's also hard to remember, too, that there is vast support for a lot of this from the large majority of the populace. So it's really easy to paint this as like the government doing terrible things to us that we don't want. But there are a significant number of people who do want this kind of thing. Um, and so that's, you know, its own kind of issue. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. How long has this been going on? Like, um... It surprised me in your talk, uh, we talked about the significance of the Utah location. Uh, in your talk, you talked about the significance of giving it in San Francisco, and you give a pretty old example there. 
Yeah, so the one of the examples from San Francisco directly was um, building, I think it's like, it's like the address is 641 Folsom Street or something. That's where AT&T's offices are in Soma, um, which if those of you who don't know the details of San Francisco, that's where all the startups are. Um, and basically they had a, a wire splitter on the like backbone internet connection to copy all of everything and just keep it. And so that was, you know, something that happened, uh, in the last 10 or 15 years. I don't remember super specifically when, but I mean, gen- generally speaking, surveillance and, and is something that's much older than the internet too. The internet has just allowed it to scale and has changed the nature of surveillance. But, you know, we, um, we specifically, uh, surveilled like, Martin Luther King, for example, the FBI wrote a letter to Dr. King suggesting that he should kill himself um, as an example of like something that we do uh, to people that we find politically inconvenient. So um, it's not it's not even that the, the the Internet has made the nature of the surveillance change and made it much less personal. But, um, you know, the amount of surveillance the NSA can do today would make like the Stasi, you know, over, like, they would, they would kill people for this kind of information. Um, I I, I was actually just going to bring up the Stasi and that if you look at our reactions to government surveillance of the populace in decades past, that, you know, I I remember in the, in the eighties, you know, like people would talk about the Stasi, it was like, it was the worst thing you could do to a, to a society. Can we get a definition? I just learned about the Stasi a year ago from reading James Bond novels. So I, I do not know what they are. So okay, yeah, I was so, going to say I was in uh, like elementary school in the eighties, so I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So basically, it was like whenever um, you know, whenever Germany was split into East Germany and West Germany, the Stasi was like. Uh, is a, it's an abbreviation for a bunch of German that I don't know because I have not done enough Duolingo yet. Um, but, but basically they were essentially like the NSA of the East Germany, uh, half. And so it was the, they, secret, it was the secret police. Right. So they did tons of surveillance on citizens. They like collected data about what was going on and just like shenanigans, et cetera. And, and one of their big programs was that they paid people to inform on their neighbors. Right. Wow, that's black nice. market and ratting ratting people out. Yeah, whereas we just like people on Facebook now, right? That's <laughs> that's that's my price. I I would do it. You you name the crime, I'll tell you how many likes. <laughs> so here's another interesting thing too. Since you brought up liking on Facebook, one of the weird situations about how we don't fully understand the systems we build, and this is like the software angle, like why we should care, even if you don't like. Theoretically, you don't care about your privacy, whatever, that's fine. But like as software developers, what we have to think about in our task in the future is, so we only think about the Facebook like button as being a way for Facebook to, to like know the stuff we like, right? But the problem is, is that cookies. So when you're logged into Facebook, anytime you connect to Facebook.com, you send the cookie along to it. And so when you embed the Facebook like button on your website, that means that the Facebook cookie um, with the refer information of the page that you're on gets sent to the Facebook um, button. So as one really silly um, example, again, of something that's just like moderately embarrassing that people might want to keep secret is, for example, your porn preferences. So I obviously have just heard this. I don't know this from personal experience, but lots of <laughs> porn websites have social media integration these days. And you so didn't they hear have it from like, me. Yeah, they, I, I've heard this um, through industry research that, yeah. uh, you know, there's like Reddit like buttons and, and even Facebook like buttons and Twitter share buttons and all that stuff. So if that embeds any content from Twitter or Facebook, like Facebook could know the porn that you're looking at, even if 
you don't actually like any of those buttons because the iframe would send along the refer data from the page that was being embedded into. Wow. And so right. they can so, keep track of that information because of the systems we build. So it's not intended mm-hmm. consequence of the way that we make these things. I, I want to get yeah. one level uh, deeper on this real quick, and that can, is that... Can you hang on? Because I, w- I want to I say how to deal with that. So, th- so there's actually a, a, a fairly straightforward way to mitigate that problem. And I use Fluid App on the Mac to run my Facebook, my Twitter, you know, my, my Gmail. So basically things that have, you know, long running cookies that they get, uh, you know, like just what Steve was talking about. If you're, if you have a Facebook cookie in your browser, it can, you know, uh, tell Facebook about what sites you're looking at. Oh, I so, so I, I so couldn't have asked for a better setup. Keep talking. Yeah. So I, um, I run, you know, in my main Safari, I don't, I, you know, I, I keep it, uh, flushed of cookies from Facebook and Twitter and others and other social sites. And I only run those things in a fluid app that has a separate cookie jar. So those cookies never get into the main Safari cookie jar. So if I go and look at a site that ha- you know, that has some weird crap on it and a Facebook referrer link, then Facebook doesn't find out that I'm looking at that. I, and I, I and I just I just kind of do that as a as a matter of course to keep things separate so that things don't get all like blown up all over the place. There can be a lot of advantages to doing stuff like that too. Just in that fluid gives you a way to apply like style sheets to just to those things and stuff. So like I recently uh, put Facebook in a fluid app and then built a style sheet that went and like shut off all the ads, which are like a third of Facebook's <laughs> main page now. You know. Mm-hmm. And then I had like all this room and stuff that, you know, there can be other just like nice side effects of that. But yeah, what Josh is basically saying is by keeping Facebook in that separate app, then only Facebook has Facebook's cookies. And then when we're, or data, and then when we're browsing around the web, you know, and you go to some site with Facebook integration, it doesn't actually know who you are and can't use that data. Yeah. One thing I do want to point out though is that I have had, and this is, this is where I was going before. I have had at least two, maybe three ISPs where I could actually sign into the web portal that they have and I could go and look at all of the websites that I've been to. So they keep track of it, you know. So even though Fluid keeps Facebook from knowing it, or if you use Chrome's incognito mode so that, you know, it shuts all that stuff off and all of the plugins in your browser that may be tracking some of this information, your ISP knows where you've been going. And so, um, even still, I mean, there's, there is some level of somebody knowing this information and right. it's possible for them to use it against you. Now, hopefully, you know, they're, they're being benign about it, but I mean, we've had things come out in the past where the government or other uh, entities have worked out deals with ISPs and other companies to basically gather all that data anyway. Right. You can correlate, you know, access times. One of the, so Tor is a tool that I talked about that can help protect your privacy to a certain degree. But if you have a significant amount of data on the, the entry and exit points of Tor, you can correlate the access times and you can know that like someone is visiting that site, even if you like lose the trail in between. So especially when you want to get like targeted information about is this person going to this site, it's, you know, not always perfect. So what is Tor? How does it work? Why don't we talk about that? Yeah, so Tor is a project that um, conspiracy theory here was originally started by the Navy, um, and it was designed to, so a lot of what's interesting about all of the stuff we do with technology is so much of it comes out of military um, research. 
So, like, you know, the, the reason that the web is decentralized is because we wanted to be able to survive, you know, nukes taking out a city or whatever, right? So, same sort of deal with Tor. Tor is, um, Tor is short for the onion routing protocol, T-O-R, the onion routing. Um, and ba so basically what it is, is it's, um, it, they use the onion to describe it because you basically layer up an internet connection with multiple levels of encryption. So let's say that I, uh, you know, want to visit a, a website. Uh, so we'll just say, you know, the, the Ruby Rogues website. So what happens is when I sign up and I turn on Tor, which the easiest way to do it is to go grab the Tor browser bundle from Tor's website, which includes a Firefox that has the Tor access stuff pre-set up. So just like you build a Fluid app for a different site for different things, it's really nice to have this like Tor-enabled browser to leave your normal browser alone. But you start up Tor, and what happens is your computer connects to the Tor cloud of servers and it, and it says, like, hey, is there any good um, entry nodes that I can use? So it chooses an entry node. And what happens is when you say, when your browser says, I would like to go to, you know, foo.com, it sends that to the entry node. And what the entry node does is it picks, well, I, I shouldn't say super big it picks, but basically it, the Tor network determines how to route your request through at least three servers, and it wraps them in encryption every time. So server A sends a doubly encrypted message to server B. Server B unwraps one level of encryption and then sends that message to server C. Server C unwraps that next level of encryption and then sends it along. So what happens is, is that B does not know who sent the message to A, they just know they got a message from A. And C does not know who sent the message to B, they just know they got the message from B. And so at, at every level, at every like bounce that happens through the system, you unwrap a level and you lose one round of history. So um, it's impossible to trace the connection back to the original person because you uh, you know have made it like it's gotten lost in this bouncing around. So the downside is, as you can imagine, it's pretty slow because you're connecting through at least three intermediate servers before getting to your final server. And it doesn't protect against everything. So like I said, if you have both ends, you can correlate the access times and know that it's like, oh, this person is browsing this site. If a large number of nodes were compromised by a particular entity, then they could know all, you know, have enough nodes known to be able to say, oh, A did send a message to B and B did send a message to C and C did send a message to D or whatever. But we have pretty good reason to believe that most of those nodes are not compromised. And there's also, you know, if there's a bug in Tor, obviously that can be a problem. So okay, so short short of the level of anonymity that Tor provides and all of the onion routing, what about just a straightforward anonymizing proxy? Yeah, so basically, as long as you can trust that the person who runs the proxy is not actually keeping the data, which is something that you maybe can't, because like a lot a lot of these issues really do come down to trust and who you trust and how much you trust them. So if I was running an anonymous proxy that it, that said, like, we keep no log files, we throw everything away every 30 seconds or whatever, then you probably can trust that that's okay. Probably. It just depends on, you know, at what point do they then, um, you know, are forced to, like, so one of the weird things is national security letters. So if, if the government sends a national security letter to you, you are not allowed to talk about the, the fact that you received a national security letter. So even if, if you're running a free anonymous proxy and then you get a message from the government and they say you must install the software that keeps track of all of the log data, and by the way, you're not allowed to say that we told you this, you then have to keep telling people essentially a lie um, or face criminal contempt of court charges. So, um, you know, this and being attacked by the government is a scary thing. So This has been a problem in, in some of the recent cases that... 
as the NSA starts to, you know, kind of apply these pressures and stuff, uh, very few companies are able to stand up to them because, as you said, you know, just doing that puts you on a severe side of, like, criminal law, you know, and yeah. uh, it can get very ugly very fast. So only very large, you know, only very large companies will do anything at all, you know, about, uh, you know, standing up to them and, and sometimes not even then. Wasn't there an yeah. example of Google doing that? Lava Bit made the news as well. Um, yeah. Because they chose to fold up their operations instead of turning stuff over. And that's, they got. That's right. And they're getting hammered with like contempt of court stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what about hosting stuff outside the U.S.? So one of the weird problems is is that um, we exert um, a modern form of imperialism where we uh, make other countries follow our laws, even though there are laws. And one way that we do that is through free trade agreements. So, for example, right now, this morning, WikiLeaks leaked the contents of this document called the Secret Trans-Pacific Trade Agre- a Partnership Agreement, TPPPPPPPP. Um, That's our government. Yeah, and so basically they essentially say if you don't follow our copyright laws, then shit's going to get real bad for you. And so even though other countries may have better information on server stuff, um, first of all, our our country is not beyond just straight up hacking your shit um, because it's in another country so we can get away with it, right? So we do this to China all the time and we brag about it. You know, uh, Stuxnet was revealed to be created by um, the Israeli Defense Forces and I think that we had some involvement in Stuxnet as well. And so, like, first of all, they just don't care about the rule of law in other countries, um, so you're probably hosed. And they may not be willing to stand up for a... Like, imagine... This is the conversation, right? So, okay. (laughs) I I like to make lots of analogies to my parents sometimes. So, I used to get really mad that my dad would not let me play video games that I wanted to play because he knew that I was, like, in the right to play video games my mom thought was wrong. But, like, once I grew up and, like, got a girlfriend, I realized that if I had a kid and my, like, wife... If I had to like, I'm not going to pick a fight with my wife just to let my kid play video games, right? So it's the same kind of thing where like, if you're the French government and I'm a United States citizen and the United States government says, hey, France, uh, we really want this person. Yeah, we might have to violate some of your laws to do it, but like, we're going to nail them anyway. The French government is not going to stand up for you, the individual, to like, you ruin their trade agreements, right? Like, and cause an international kerfluffle. Well, especially um, since uh, you are the U.S.'s kid, not France's kid. Exactly, right? So it's just like the the incentives are just not there um, to pr- actually protect you. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Well, and between your house and France, I mean, they own all the pipe all the way over there. Yep. So that's definitely a problem. Well, they own a lot of. You look at the internet topography. We own a lot of the pipe between France and Belgium. Right. I mean, you, yeah. you send an e- you send an email from Paris to to London, and it goes through San Francisco. Yeah, and also too, you have to remember that like courts are interesting. So, for example, um, this is this is not related to privacy, but it's one example of like the government using courts to silence people um, for various reasons. So, I have a friend of a friend who um, lives in Salt Lake City um, a while back, and he was concerned about the fur trade. And so he had um, some meetings to discuss some activism that can be done around this fur trade. And he had three meetings, and after the third meeting, a, fa- a fur factory burned down uh, mysteriously. 
And so the government called this thing called a grand jury, which is something that activists know a lot about, but individuals often don't know about grand juries, basically to investigate who burned down this factory. Now, my friend of a friend was called as a witness to this grand jury, um, which, all, by the way, all the proceedings are secret. And basically, they said, we know that you did not burn down this factory. We know that you were not involved in it directly in any way. All we want to know is the names of the people who were at the meeting. And he said, I'm not telling you. And they said, you do know that this is not a court uh, of law, so you do not have, like, your Fifth Amendment rights, and, like, it's not even about you, so it's not self-incrimination, so, like, you have to tell us. And he said, I'm not telling you. And they said, that's criminal contempt of court. And he said, I'm not telling you. So they actually threw him in jail for, um, I believe the initial sentence was, like, six years or something. Um, and he got it re reduced down to a year and a half or two years. But, like, just because, even though they said, we know that you do not commit a crime, but you need to tell us who these people are. And so that's, like, super, super negative, and it's something that happens to activists quite a lot. So, um, you know, those kinds of things could happen to you as a software owner running a thing. You know, tell us who your users are, or else we're going to throw you in jail is very common. So, so one of the things that uh, we were told, this is a little bit of a tangent, uh, what, you know, when I... You know, I've worked on healthcare applications, and one of the things we're told is you don't want to collect. It's the same thing for credit cards. You don't want to collect any information about your users that you don't actually have a need for, right? And you know, it just makes it easier not to have to take care of the data at all. You, know, you can say, okay, great. You know, we've collected their social security number, and we've used all these layers of encryption and uh, you know data hygiene to make sure that nobody can get access to it. But if you don't actually have a need for that data, just don't collect it, and then the cost of having to manage that data securely is zero. And right. so, so it's just a general best practice not to collect any information that you do not have a need for. And right. I think it's the the um, the same thing with you know protect you know what is your user list? It you know if you if the only thing you have for your users is the email addresses that they logged in as, you know that's a lot better than having their name and their phone number and their social security number and their credit card number and all that. But Absolutely. you know if you're if you're clever enough, you can you know, build something that doesn't require any email address. You can just do it based off URLs or, or whatever. Uh, right. So it, you know, at some point you, you know, it, it becomes work not to collect anything from your users, but you know, th there's definitely a, a, a nice local minimum where it's easy not to collect the information or, you know, and then you don't have to worry about compromising your users. Right. I mean, one of the trends recently is lean startups, right? And one of the things about lean is that you need to perform experiments to understand your business better. And a lot of those experiments involve collecting data and crunching data, right? So people say, like, you should be making data-driven decisions about your startup. And so that has been, like, a social movement over the last couple of years is, like, collect more data, collect more data, collect more data. Um, and not necessarily for nefarious purposes, but it can be accidentally used for such. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking how, how much data, you know, can can easily be used. Does everybody remember the fire sheep? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Firefox oh, yeah. that just mm -hmm. grabbed your cookies and then boom, they were logged into all the sites you were interacting with right then, you know, and it was like, wow, that's shocking. Yeah. For anyone who's not familiar, fire sheep was a plugin for Firefox that basically anyone else who was connected to your local network and had non-secure cookies, it would show you a copy of them and then allow you to be logged in as that person. So you could like, oh. before Facebook and H and like GitHub and stuff required HTTPS for logging in, you could like go to a Wi-Fi cafe, connect to their free internet, and then see everyone in the cafe who was on Facebook and just click on one of their names and you would be logged in as them because it would steal their cookie. Um, yeah, but 
What do you call that? A session replay attack? I believe that would be, yes, a session replay, I think. Well, and that touches on two a really important point. I mean, so far we've been talking about big nebulous things that don't really affect most of us directly, you know, on a day-to-day basis, like governments and international politics and that sort of thing. But if you read The Art of Deception by Kevin Mitnick, he talks about private investigators and what they will do to acquire information Mm -hmm. and the speed with which they can gain access to bank account information, you know, and you know, identity thieves are very, very sophisticated. And yeah, I'm, I'm running whatever Google Latitude has changed and it's got a different name now, but my phone now knows, um, where I work and where I eat lunch every day. And it's telling me like right now that, you know, I'm eight minutes away from my favorite cafe. It knows my patterns from day to day of physical travel. And when I flew to Austin for Lone Star RubyConf, it knew that I was traveling and it constantly told me how, how many minutes away I was from the airport because it knew very soon that I was going to need to get back to the airport and I needed to know how much time that was going to be. So forget about, I mean, yeah, the government's got that, right? Fine, whatever. It's in Bluffdale, Utah. They've got a copy of it. But Google is hackable. It's, it's exposable, right? I mean, Adobe just got leaked, what, 130 million usernames and passwords? Yep. And if, if you've shared your password between your Adobe account and any other account, they're going to try that and they're going to get in. And now all of a sudden, a private investigator or an identity thief, identity thief knows where I am, where I typically am at a given time. And that, that starts to create physical vulnerability. Like they know when they can come burgle my house. I'm not saying that's their primary goal, but that's what I mean is that this information and so much more is available to the the criminal class, which does affect us on a day-to-day basis. Like we all know somebody who's had their bank accounts drained by an identity thief. How do we balance those, those separate needs? Like there's, there's this push from, uh, you know, mainstream consumerism, I think, for things like Google Now and things like that, right, that, that you know, relate all these details and give you this kind of up-to-date information. And as we push forward with things like Google Glass, that becomes even more valuable. You know, I look at something and I get all this information and data about it. But the flip side of that is that that that's more data that can link to all these other things about me and you can learn ridiculous amounts of things about me. I mean, the PlayStation Store has been hacked like multiple times. You know, what can you learn just by the video games people play and stuff like that, right? How do we balance that? I mean, one of the things I'm not even sure that it is balanceable because it is going to happen now regardless of whether we want it to or not. So I don't 100% know what the answer is exactly, but I do know that we can't really turn the clock back. It's not really an option. Yeah. Mm Yeah, it's going off the grid is no longer an option. We can find you just by the dark spot in the grid. Well, and I, I'm really curious too. I mean, at what point do people in general start getting upset or worrying about it? Uh, you know, I, I know that the government's going to walk a fine line to not tick off a majority of people and really cause themselves a problem. Or at least I, I would assume. I don't know. I mean, like, I would so assume they're, yeah. This whole Snowden thing, like, I mean, a lot of people have been mad about that, you know, from the get-go, and and it doesn't seem to phase them very much at all. How long was it before Obama even said, 
I'm gonna look into the NSA practices. I mean, he he didn't say that till you know what recently, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just just the general lack of blowback too. I mean, we landed a plane with the head of a sovereign nation on it because we yeah. thought he was on a plane, right? So like that is just completely mind blowingly ridiculous, and we have suffered no consequences. So yeah. you know, the part of part of the issue is just that. Um, uh, it is that there is basically no drawback for what we are doing. So, like, we are making our government is making rational decisions um, because there is like there's no negative. Um, and I'm not saying that there like there's going to be a negative anytime soon, but that's sort of the problem in my perspective is just that there's there is no limiting factor, and so it's it's hard. Okay, so you say that there are no negative consequences, uh, at least in the short term. Well, we don't actually know. We've seen how much of the government's business is conducted in secrecy, and you know, we don't know what kind of negative repercussions have happened in secret diplomatic channels. Yeah, so. Right, I mean, that's true. And also, you have to remember, too, that, like, so everyone pays attention to the point at which things become visible, but like a pot of water goes from zero to a hundred degrees before it starts boiling, right? So every 10 degree increment doesn't look any different until you hit the boiling point, And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that 10 degree change is a super big deal, right? But it's not actually, it's about gradual buildup. So it definitely is possible that we're in a stage of like gradual buildup for an eventual backlash. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And that's not, that doesn't mean that the gradualness should be discounted either. Um, there's, there's a, a depressingly optimistic uh, arg- counter argument to the "there's no negative consequences," and that is that um, saying that there's no consequences for you know the number one superpower in the world doing all this crap that is exactly the too big to fail argument, and that has been proven uh, not to work. And the reality is, we're not the number one superpower in the world in anything except for incarcerating people. And I mean, we're like number four at best in everything. And so it's, it's, it's coming. There's going to be a time where we're going to mess with China and China's going to say no. And there will be a backlash. And wow, now I'm into like political doomsdayism. Um, quick, somebody tell a <laughs> fart joke. Oh, wait, that's my job. Um, but my, my, my point is, is that it, it can't go on forever and we, we can't go off the grid. So maybe the solution is to push back on those in power and say, no, you, you don't, if, if we don't get privacy, neither do you. We need total transparency across the board. And I realize that kind of a pipe dream as well right now, but it certainly could be helpful. I think if we were all educated on what information was allowed to be secret and why, and there were watchers to watch the watchers basically instead of this single corruptible absolute power you know, central agency, yeah, I think it let, could maybe work. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> so, you know, that, that was about three mental leaps uh, from what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, but uh, no, but, but you know, the, the, you know, people watching the watchers and, and all that is, is very much thinking along the mindset of what got us into the, all this trouble. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as Einstein often gets misquoted, you can't solve a problem with the same mindset that you use to create it. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, but, but if you look at something like Bitcoin, that's, you know, whether or not you like Bitcoin or, you know, you know, oh, and oh. other, other merits of it can be debated. There is this, this cool thing about it where it's meant to be this distributed, anonymized accounting system. And you can make sure that everybody's paid everybody the, you know, the amount they should without compromising their identity. 
And when I went to work on smart cards in the 90s, this was, you know, a, I thought it was really cool. This was on the, um, the brink of people were talking about anonymous secure transactions. And you know, it looked like there was a chance that we were going to be able to come up with an electronic replacement for cash that was just as anonymous for, as cash. And you know, I was like, hey, this is really cool. I want to be part of that. And then, you know, a few years later, just everyone had given up on that. And they said, no, the governments will never allow us to do financial processing without being able to track the identity, identities of everyone involved. And everyone just gave up on it. So I think there is this, there is something like a war going on where, you know, there's people who are trying to create systems that are decentralized and are essentially impervious to the kind of surveillance that we've been talking about. But there's a lot of pushback against creating those systems. Right. And the WikiLeaks guys actually talk about this a lot. So if you read some of the stuff that um, Julian Assange and Jacob Applebaum have written, they talk about how encryption is like the laws of physics, right? Like math does not bend for governments. So if you can create strong enough encryption, it doesn't actually matter who is paying attention because the, you know, if it takes more processing time than we have, you know, seconds left in the universe before it's, you know, the sun collapses, then like it's effectively secret, right? So, yeah. Okay. But, but I, we think. I mean, I, th I think that mindset of do things in a decentralized way, do things in a, you know, there's, there's something there. And, you know, I don't know how much the, you know, like you said, nobody knows all the laws that they're breaking, right? <laughs> so, right. so yeah. what, you know, it, you know, is there, are there laws about what we have to collect on people and how we have to manage that data? That means that we can't be as anonymous as we'd like. Yeah. It's definitely a non-trivial uh, problem for sure. <laughs> Okay, so 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 short of worrying about those laws, what are the kind of things that we as like web developers and software developers should be doing so that we are not unnecessarily compromising our users' privacy? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. I mean, yeah. we've already talked about like some individual things like Tor and you know placing your apps in separate containers to to get cookie jars or. Uh, when Firesheep was big, everybody would tunnel over SSH to get their internet connection mm -hmm. uh, when they were out in public. And there were tools for that, like SheepSafe and stuff, uh, that helped you dodge, you know, that. Um, right. Right. Uh, so, so, yeah, what, okay. what, so, on an app level? Yeah. Now, now there, there's some basic stuff that I think that most web developers who are, you know, uh, awake and not under a rock, uh, know about, and that's like you don't store plat passwords and clear text in the database. And you know, one that uh, most people I think are aware of is that if somebody tries to log in and fails, you don't tell them what failed, their, their user ID or their password, you just say you can't log in. That way you protect against pe attacks that are trying to fish to say, oh, does this user have an account on your system? So you don't even let them know that. And and then when they go to, then if somebody tries to go to a page in your application that is protected by authorization controls, you just give them a 404, the page isn't there, rather than letting them know there is a page there, but they can't get to it. There, there's things like that that we do in building our applications in the name of security. So what are the things we're doing in names of in the name of protecting our users? Right. I think the most fundamental thing to remember is that technology is not agnostic. Like, we like to sort of pretend that the tech that we build doesn't have any effect on the real world or on people or that it's like apolitical or that it doesn't actually affect anyone, but that that's not actually true. So you have to sort of think through what are the implications of what you can do 
um, which is like the most important first step is just having the mindset of acknowledging that this is an issue. And so, yeah, I think all those suggestions are like good, obvious ones, Josh. I think that a lot of this for me comes down to like, what's the worst case scenario and what does that look like? So, you know, if my database was opened tomorrow, like who would be in trouble and for what, right? So like, uh, you know, what is the, if, if we st start storing this extra kind of data and that gets leaked, like what are the possible implications of that? So should we be storing this somewhere or not? So people think about this with credit cards all the time, right? That's why you don't, you don't want to deal with PCI compliance. So you, you know, pay someone else to handle your payment stuff. So you don't have to like deal with that regulatory issue because if you would leak people's credit card numbers, you would be terrible, right? So if we start thinking about data in that kind of way, you know, that's like, there's other kinds of data that are valuable, not just credit card info. That's like a good like mindset to get into to how start working on these kinds of things. What are kinds of valuable data? That's a good question, actually. I mean, like everything is is part of it. <laughs> part of the it, it like everything is valuable to a certain degree, right? So if you know what email addresses people use, you can then like correlate things together. If you know what like access they come from, you can say like, oh, you know, you can know that I am, for example, not in my hometown right now because you uh, can see via my Twitter that I tweeted about it being cold in Brooklyn last night, right? So you can make an educated guess that I'm probably not in Los Angeles. And so, you know, it's, it's those kinds of things that um, I think it's super individual. It's hard, to, it's hard to really say in general, like, this is data that's useful and this is data that's not. Um, all data is useful. The question is for what? Right. Yeah. Right. I, I know personally, I don't do any of that, like, Foursquare check-in that lets people know where I am because, you know, I'm a little paranoid about that kind of thing. On the other hand, if I go speak at a conference, everyone in the world knows that I'm in, you know, Portland or Miami or someplace and not at home. So there's definitely past a point where you can't be, you know, lurking and anonymous and, you know, protecting your, your identity completely unless you're why the lucky stiff. Right. And going that route. And even he wasn't perfect, right? It only took a, one reporter, you know, to dedicate herself to figuring it out before she figured it out, right? So. So what you're saying is we should all just post IP addresses for printers and communicate yeah. back. <laughs> yes. Snail mail only, but oh, they actually read tons of snail mail too, so that's actually not significantly more secure. Um, <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to change my, uh, my online presence to I the Lucky Stiff. Just don't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> it's funny how, I mean, you know, we, we just take it for granted. Like, um, in Twitter, you know, Twitter now has to use location services. And if you read it, you know, it, it stamps, uh, your tweets with where you tweeted from, you know, and, uh, it, it's interesting. I, I, I almost kind of like it as a consumer of Twitter because, uh, I can, I watch people, you know, and it's like, oh, that person's uh, all the way on the other side of the country right now. What are they doing? You know, or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, I, I realize, you know, ah, that's kind of creepy that I know that, you know. Yeah, well, 99% of the time, it doesn't matter. You know, nobody's right. going to come and accost you in, you know, wherever you're at. Nobody's going to go break into your house because they know you're out of town. You know, I'm sure it does happen, but I think in the vast majority of cases it doesn't. And so for most people, it's a comfortable thing to share their location data. And and that's kind of uh, part of the thing, you know, that's both good and bad about it is that, you know, then if the government does need some data on you, you know, was he actually in this town at this time because this crime was committed and we think he was involved, then all of a sudden it's not such a great thing. 
And so it, it really boils down to, I think, what, what Steve was getting at earlier, and that is, is that the, the amount of data and the type of data really depends on who's trying to use it and what they want to use it for. And also, there, there's things like, you know, there, something came out recently about all those mugshot websites where when yep. somebody gets arrested and they, have a, and they get booked and they have a mug, mugshot taken, that's just like one step in the process. And very often people are just like released. No, there's never any charges. The, you know, and, and, you know, there's an arrest record, but that's it. And, you know, but you go to these websites and now there's like this information about someone being arrested and it's all over the internet. And, you know, even though they were never convicted of a crime, there's still that record. Mm -hmm. And, th yeah. and then there, there's other similar things where, I, last month, for example, someone in Pearl community got arrested for, um, domestic abuse. And someone happened to be looking at one of those websites and noticed, like, holy shit, that guy yesterday got, like, booked for this. And, you know, so that was, like, a Pearl drama situation, you know, in a programming community with something from his personal life, you know, spewed over, et cetera. Right, right, right. But, right. but then there's that, the, years ago, somebody wrote a website, pleaserobme.com. Yes. Yeah. Which, like, took all of the right. public check-in information about, and then there's the, uh, was the website where, um, oh, there's oh, just, like, all sorts of other websites where it like takes publicly available information and makes it really oh oh right there, there's the website that finds people who are posting photographs of their credit cards and debit cards on yeah. Twitter wow. with all of their with their numbers what, what? people yeah. do that yeah, yeah people, people are like, like I got my brand new credit card woo yeah or oh I got my driver's license so there's people posting like really <sighs> dumb personally identifying information publicly on Twitter and Facebook yeah. and yeah. so pe so people have been like. Like compiling these as sort of satire accounts and things, but but it, it can do real damage. And it, and there are websites where, that are sorted in, in the black market area of the internet where they compile personally identifying information and resell it. So if you, so, there's like all these identity theft websites that deal in this business. And there was a time and, before yeah. people use real databases where, for example, you could like Google for Visa and then like the four digits and it would find like some online stores whatever dot text that was all their user account information with all their credit card numbers like back yeah. in the day obviously we're a little better than that so now, yeah and terrifying my favorite so a bit of that was jeremy clarkson from top gear a couple of years ago, published his bank account information in the newspaper and said, "Identity theft is a storm in a teacup," you know. And he yeah. basically then said, "Here, you can get my address from the electoral roll." And da 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 da. And yeah. the very next day, he, against his will, made a five hundred pound uh, donation to the British Diabetic Association. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so, yeah, there was some guy uh, like five years ago who had some internet service that was protecting identity theft, and he. Like rented a truck and drove around LA with his social security number on the side of the truck, wow. and then he got hacked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he was like, "Oh, my service will protect me," but then you know, even that couldn't do it. But but my point is that it's not just protecting against the government; it's that it, you know, or official surveillance. It's mm -hmm. that there's other abuses of the of our information and places where we yeah. where we deserve privacy, and yep. it's important and valuable. That it's not just about government surveillance and the things that we do to protect our to protect ourselves and our users against unwarranted surveillance. Yeah, uh, and it's a great often, line. Like yeah, I've yeah. Had, had stalkers show up to where I said I was tweeting, and I've had best friends show up to where I was tweeting, and I've had people that I hadn't met on the internet before that I was happy to say hello to, right? Just mm -hmm. like show up because I tweeted I was somewhere. So right, but the, but let me just finish the thought. Yeah, is that is that the things that we do 
to safeguard our users against unwarranted surveillance are also useful for protecting their information against people who are using it for obviously nefarious purposes. Yeah, totally. This gets into the theory of vulnerability where if you are internally, if you are invulnerable, you can afford to be vulnerable external, you know, like limitlessly. You can let people in and out, you know, to whatever level because you're, you're not vulnerable in, internally. Internally, if you are vulnerable, there is some external level to matching the degree of your vulnerability and the severity of it. There is some external level of invulnerability that you must maintain. Okay, that's kind of fun psychological theory, but I wonder if this is a separate episode. Actually, I wonder if this is an entire like six-month course about what we can do if if we've admitted if we if we're just declaring bankruptcy on privacy and on on security and on freedom from stalkers. Like Steve, you said you had you've had stalkers show up where you were tweeting, but you don't want to give up that privacy or right. you don't want to you don't want to claim reclaim that privacy because you've had friends and you've met new people doing this. So in order to do that, you have to become invulnerable in that space. And the way you do that is by having a plan and knowing what you're going to do. So knowing what you're going to do if your identity gets stolen, knowing what you're going to do if the government, you know, executes a no-knock warrant on you at three o'clock in the morning, knowing what you're going to do if these details, you know, if, if somebody publishes, you know, the complete anthology of homophobic rants from Steve Klabnik, um, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, yeah. it's, you, you would handle this, right? You don't, you're not laying awake worrying about this. You know, I mean, if, if that happened, like, yep, I did that. I shouldn't have and I'm different now. And people would be, okay, and we'd all move on. And I'm elaborating the point now, but my, my question is, is there, something that we can do now to prepare against this kind of stuff for when it when it goes bad like how do we deal with things when things go bad i think that the one of the most important things to to remember is that like things are different so like we are all human and we all do make mistakes and so sometimes like i'm not saying in the sense of uh in the sense of like government spying stuff that's sure but like yeah. when something that is awkward comes up because of a certain thing like you know people have I've sent, you know, missed text messages to people, right? Where I send one thing to someone I meant to send to someone else. Yeah. And so, like, we need to be certain, to a certain degree, like, charitable when these kinds of, like, personal private boundaries get mixed up in a weird way. We need to say, like, oh, yeah, it is really awkward that there's a photo of you topless on the internet or, like, you know, naked or, like, whatever. I'm not going to look at it or I'm going to, like, still respect you as a human being because, like, we all f up and do things that we're not proud of. And so, yeah. like, I understand that was intended to be private and it's not private, like, you know, my bad. Um, yeah. and, and so developing that kind of like empathy and, and like, cause really this is about new social understandings, right? Like the, re the reason this is a problem is cause it violates our notions of what's private and what's public. Mm -hmm. And those have been shifting for a long time in that like before we had mass media, what was private was very, very different than today. And so, you know, it's a lot of this is like readjusting our co cultural norms to uh, a world where what some things we think are private and we say them are not private. Mm -hmm. I can think of recent incidents, for example, with mailing lists that are private, where someone who is not part of that private group gets access to a list and then people are upset because it violated, even though it's being sent over the clear in emails that are clearly not actually private. Um, yeah. That doesn't matter because we have a social expectation that's been violated, right? Yeah. So. We're, we need to like work on these social norms to, and figure out what the right boundary is and be charitable when these boundaries are screwed up, you know, in the meantime, at least when it's appropriate. I mean, obviously, if you willfully violate boundaries, that's another thing entirely, but yeah. Um, 
accidental violation will happen somehow. Yeah. I think yeah. we need to start being conscientious too of our role in this. Like, um, yes, I remember an incident a while back, like where somebody asked a question about people on the mailing list. And I had actually, I don't know why, like, read the entire intro email that nobody ever reads to the mailing list. And it turned out that this mailing list had this feature where you could just send an email message to a certain address and it would respond to you with every single person on that mailing list. Wow. And so I did this and I used it to answer the question and somebody was like, how did you get that information? And I was like, oh, it's available on the mailing list. And, and, you know, it didn't even occur to me back then, which, you know, it's like, wow, that's so horrific. But it, it was actually the mailing list owner was like, wow, we didn't even know that feature was in there or active yeah. or whatever. That's like super scary, you know, and yeah. it is. One recent privacy violating thing is this whole LinkedIn intro situation. And so, um, you know, a lot of people said like, oh, well, the programmers who built that were just like doing their jobs or whatever, right? And so there's sometimes we will be asked by management or by other people to like do things that we find to be not acceptable. Um, and one of the things that I am like super conflicted about is that like other professions have things like ethic, ethics boards, which uh, determine what the appropriate social norms for profession are. And so it allows people who are working to push back against management that wants them to do something that's unethical by saying like, I could lose my license, like I'm not going to do that or whatever. And we sort of have nothing other than like, you know, what, you're going to like quit your job, right, over this? And, like, people have reasons they can't quit jobs and stuff. So there's oftentimes when we're asked to do unethical things and we need to make sure that we uh, don't absolve ourselves by saying that, like, oh, we're just the tool makers. What you do with the tools is, yeah. is you know, good or bad. Um, so, if you build tools that are primarily used for bad, then, you know, that's bad. Um, like we're just following orders. Yeah. So, I, so I heard somebody speak about the, um, the new LinkedIn... Yeah connection feature that way yeah that that it was unethical and and i kind of agree with that i think you know i don't i don't want to point fingers too badly but it but it looks like there is so much opportunity for abuse there and that they're not disclosing the all the risks so yes yeah yeah yeah, and just what's the name of the thing i believe it's called linkedin intro Intro, yes, that's the name of it. Yeah, it's just basically it, it route. If you sign up for it, it routes all of your email through their uh, email server, and then they modify your email message. By oh yeah, yeah, and that and is so. And, and and the crazy thing about it is that if I sign up for that service, then all if then I send you an email, and, and if you send me an email, then it goes through the LinkedIn servers anyway. Because all your email, they, they become your proxy. They become your yeah. email service. Oh yes. yes. Yeah, but yeah, they promise but, they won't peek. Yeah, don't worry. They're not using so, it for evil. Now, now, <laughs> now, Google does, Google does that too. It's right. You know, you know, all the yeah. all my Gmail goes through the Google servers, and then they actually look at it and figure out what ads to show me based on that, and maybe some other things. But so, you know, it, it's clear that there are cases where I'm okay with pe- with people getting their hands on my email, but right. I think that the the way LinkedIn presented it was not quite like. You know, if you put your email on Google servers, you know your email is on Google servers, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. But, but, but sometimes it's hard to think of the implications of even that. Um, my buddy Greg Brown was really good one time about telling me, you don't realize how much Google actually knows about you. You know, like yeah. they have your email, they have your web searches, they have your analytics for your website, they have your 
you know, just like a staggering. People sometimes use Google as DNS, right? If you do that, right. they know everywhere you're going on the internet, you know? There was a really interesting story, um, and the, like this, I think this will be the last one before we're starting like getting off into tangents. But where an article on rewrite read write web about Facebook came above the Facebook page on the Google search for Facebook login. So what happened was is people would type Facebook login to Google, and they would click on the first link result. And then they would use that to find the Facebook login page to log into Facebook. Wow. And so what would happen was instead they got this read write web page, which has linked, which has Facebook integration. And so they logged into Facebook and there's these like hundreds of angry comments about how could you change the Facebook UI? This is such bullshit. Like, I can't imagine that these people are changing this over and yeah. over again. Like, what's the new, the totally revamp? I wear all my friends and they like did not even understand they weren't on Facebook. They were on a news site. Because people use Google, like, they rely that much on Google. They don't even type Facebook.com. They, like, load up Google first. Wait, you can go straight to Facebook.com? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay, so I have um, family who, when they want to search something on Google, go to the Safari search box and type Google to get to the Google homepage so that they can then type the search term in the Google search box. Yeah, And they'll type the word Apple to get to click on the link to take them to Apple.com. My right. mother-in-law will often just take a URL and put it in the Google search box. So she okay. has the URL to go to the proper place, but she feeds it to the Google search box. Wow. I was going to say, I know people that do that. They go to Google.com and then put it in the search bar. Yeah, I definitely occasionally have done various silly things where my computer person later was like, that's dumb. And I don't think that the UX, like, because ultimately people just want to get their stuff done, right? So, like, if that's how they get their stuff done, that's how they do it. But it does mean that Google has a really unreasonable amount of power in the situation that we may not realize at first because they do yeah. control the way that we access the web, period. And so that's important. So, yeah, so cool. The best well, I think we can do to- at this point is, like, Start to be aware of these issues. Start to be, you know, aware of our role in these issues, and and maybe try to, you know, consider if the actions we're taking are, you know, uh, how does Katrina say it in that great talk she did recently? Are we cooperating or defecting? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And to to know that that what we do is inherently social and it does affect people, and we can't. We can't not care about it, and so we're we're and we're all figuring this out together. There's no yeah. solid answer, and it will require lots of debate and new technical tools and like you know all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. and just remember, if you're not part of the solution, we know where to find you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, let's go ahead and do the picks. Dave, what are your picks? I have one pick today, and it is freaking. Awesome. It is so incredibly awesome. I cannot believe it has been picked before. I had to go to the rogues, rubyrogues.com slash picks. By the way, if anybody's listening and you want to know what we've ever picked in the past or where to find a pick, that's where you go to get it. Uh, I can't believe this has never been picked before. Teammate. Teammate.io. That's T-M-A-T-E dot I-O. It is the coolest freaking thing ever. If you love Tmux as much as I do, and I know you all do, what this is is if you ever try to remote pair with somebody 
there's this hassle of like negotiating what tool you're going to use and you know let's let's go ahead and use tmux but now we've got to stand up a server on amazon and we have to exchange ssh keys so that we can all get in that is all gone that is all a thing of the past what you do is on your machine there's a there's a homebrew installer for it there's an ubuntu installer for it i think there's one for windows i'm not sure but there's definitely linux and uh, mac and you know except for sandy metz who cares about windows users right anyway you install it and then you just go on your local machine in a terminal window, you CD into the directory that you want to work in, and you type teammate, and bam, you're in a tmux session on your local machine. And then what it does is it goes to teammate.io and says, I want to register a VPN service into my machine for teammate. And it sends back an SSH with this really long, gnarly uh, session ID string to teammate.io. You give that to your partner over Skype or Instant Messenger, and they go to a terminal and type SSH and this thing, and they connect to the teammate.io services, and that VPNs them into your teamux session on your machine. It is slick, it is fast, it is awesome, and I'm going to screw this guy's name up. He's Swedish. His last name, the, the guy who taught me this is Kevin. His last name is spelled Sejoberg. I'm going to try this, Kevin. Please forgive me. Um, his last name is pronounced Hibedi or Hibadi. Anyway, it's, uh, I call him Kevin Crowbar because I cannot pronounce any of the Swedish letters in his name. But he showed me that and it's freaking amazing. So that's my pick today is teammate. Awesome. I feel, I feel compelled to point out how interesting that is from an information standpoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it jails the directory so that they can't get out of, like, they can't CD out. I think you can get out of the directory and take them with you, but they can't CD out of, I think. There's, there's a trick to it. So, yeah, they can't get to your home directory. I was more noting on the interesting information teammate would have about users connecting with Yeah, them. yeah. All right, James, what are your picks? So I've found two things that have been super useful to me lately. One is I wanted to set up an email on a new uh, site, and I have used SendGrid in the past for things like that, but this was kind of a smaller deal, and I felt like SendGrid was overkill, and and uh, I have some desire not to use them anyway. And so I, I wanted to find a new service, and it was advertised in uh, Ruby Weekly, this Mandrel service. And I tried it, and wow, I've never seen an email service that was so ridiculously easy to get up and running with. I mean, I just logged in. It's free up to a certain point, and, you know, that typically means, like, give me a credit card, and then when you go over the line, I'll start charging you or whatever. It was none of that. It was just like, you know, log in, create an account. Boom. Do you want to use our API? Do you want to use SM, uh, SMTP? Whatever. Uh, here, take these credentials, dump them in here. You're good. It was like so ridiculously easy. I'm really loving it. Uh, so Mandrel for email. And then I also switched computers uh, recently. And uh, one of the things I wanted to change was how I manage Windows on my computer. And uh, on Linux, they have all these awesome tiling window managers, uh, whereas on Mac OS X, we don't really have those because, you know, you can't really replace the Windows manager because Apple. But we do have a lot of utilities that kind of mimic uh, some of that behavior. 
Um, and I think people know Divi maybe as the most common one. Uh, we've actually talked about it on the show before. Uh, but there's one called Moom, M-O-O-M. And I think it's kind of like Divi, but with a bunch of cool extra features. Uh, it's really nice. You can drag the whole thing from your keyboard, so you can even, like, draw out these rectangular sections you want the window to fill with your keyboard, and the window adjusts to that, and uh, stuff like that. It's really intuitive. Or, or you can use the mouse, and uh, you can, you know, set presets so windows just snap to certain things when you hit a keystroke or uh, whatever. And I'm really enjoying it. So Mandrel and Moon, those are my picks. All right, Josh, what are your picks? Okay, um, I have, uh, let's see, uh, Sarah May wrote a really cool blog post this week, and uh, it's probably been mentioned on Ruby 5 or something like that already, but uh, I'm going to mention it too. Uh, the title of her blog post is Why You Should Never Use MongoDB, and that's a very controversial title, but I happen to agree with her. I think that the the blog post is great to read just because, like in Sarah's typical fashion, she actually uses like data and science and like deductive reasoning <laughs> to sort through things. And, and it's it's a great analysis of things and showing that the the idea, it, I mean, the TLDR on it is that even if MongoDB works for the problem that you have today, if you don't really understand where your application is going and what the uses of the data are, you're probably going to get stuck and have to pay that cost in the future. So it, I think it's a great article. Uh, worth checking out. It was good. Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, worth reading. And then the other pick that I have is a classic cookbook. So I have I've picked a bunch of cookbooks over the years on this show. Uh, so I'm picking what's arguably the first cookbook. It's Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management. And there's this great uh, website that actually has all the information in it because it's in the public domain because the thing is over 150 years old. <laughs> Something like that. It's uh, it's from uh, like 1850s, and this is written in you know an era in London where or in England where people didn't have refrigerators, and the way that they cooked was very seasonal, and the ways that they had to you know plan cooking and and all that. It's just fascinating to, and the book is a great um, way to get some insight into what life was like, you know, 150. 200 years ago, something like that. So, so I find it fascinating. It was really surprising to me. The most surprising thing about reading this book was how much salt pork they used in everything they cooked. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, trying to get good nutrition throughout the year when you don't have access to fruits and vegetables is hard. So, you know, we, we think that, uh, you, you know, I, I think we just really have no idea about food in our modern culture. <laughs> and, and reading this book was like a good way to see just how much our diet has changed over a very short period of time in human evolution. So anyway, that's, uh, that's it for me this week. All right. So, uh, my first pick, I went down to RubyConf and when I was looking at booking the hotel, all the rooms were like really, really expensive. So I went on Airbnb and I found a room for like 500 bucks for the whole trip. And I had to walk a few blocks to the hotel and back every day. But it was totally worth it, and it was a nice place to stay. So I'm going to pick Airbnb. I know it's been picked on several of the shows before, so 
uh, probably not a surprise. Another pick that I have is something that I use, and I know that it doesn't solve all of the privacy problems that we've been talking about. And we discussed uh, something that uh, is somewhat like it in the fact you browse when you're when you're pushing traffic, you push traffic through their system, and it comes out the other end and goes through several servers. Um, this one's just a plain old VPN service. It's called ProXPN, and uh, it's been pretty nice. If I'm like in a a uh, coffee shop or a restaurant or something that has Wi-Fi and I don't quite trust the Wi-Fi, a lot of times I'll fire that up and that way I can uh, I can browse and not worry about who might be sniffing my traffic, at least on, on the end that I'm sitting on. And if you use the code TMTCS, that's Teach Me to Code Screencasts, TMTCS, then you can get, I think it's 20% off for life. Um, so anyway, those are my picks. Um, Steve, what are your picks? All right, so I got two things that are awesome. I guess I'll, I'll, it is two, really technically three, but two. I've been doing a lot of like work on my own productivity and getting me to a good schedule and stuff um, lately. And so I have two tools that are super awesome for that. The first one is Beeminder. So um, Yehuda actually turned me on to this thing. Beeminder is super cool. What it does is, first of all, it knows how to automatically import data from a bunch of different things. So for example, Duolingo. I've been doing German on Duolingo and I couldn't get in the habit of doing German on Duolingo. So what happened was, is I signed up for a Beeminder account. I hooked up my Duolingo account and I said, cool, I want to earn on average like 20 points on Duolingo a day for the next year. And so Beeminder goes, cool, and it makes a graph. And then whenever it tracks your data as you use the service, and um, if you're ever in danger of falling below that line on the graph, it emails you and it's like, hey, you're about to uh, fail on your goal. And if you do end up dropping too far below your goal, it freezes your goal tracking and says, pay us $5 or else, uh, you know, or you can't get your goal turned back on. That and then the so second time awesome. you fail, it's like $10. And the third time you fail, it's like 15 And you can categorize it, you know, however much you want. Um, and you can use it to import data from a ton of different services. And they also have a generic API that you can like hook up your own stuff into. So I've been super excited about using it to like keep track of the things that I want to accomplish. And, uh, it's, it's really, really awesome. Um, it's not perfect because it assumes that you can put some sort of numerical count of your goal on it, right? So it's really easy for stuff like, I want to commit to GitHub at least twice a week, or I want to do five push-ups every day. It's really hard for like, I want to be get better at painting, right? You like you need to figure out a way to like put a number to something, but it's amazing for that. And I use that in tandem with Lyft, um, which is lyft.do um, is a, an app that is like positive goal tracking. So Lyft allows you to like check in with what you've done um, so far. So it like, I have all of my morning routine in Lyft, and so I check it off every day, and it's got social integration, so your friends can be like, good job at drinking more water today, Steve, or like whatever. Um, so Beeminder is like negative reinforcement, and Lyft is positive reinforcement. So I think those two things are like super awesome, and I've been using them to get a lot of stuff done um, lately. And the last, this, the third slash second pick is the Extensible Web Manifesto. Um, this is extensiblewebmanifesto.org. I will mostly let it speak for itself. Um, basically, it represents a shift in the way that web standards are going to be developed, and that is something that we should care about as web developers. And so this is what I will be talking about largely for the next like upcoming year is about this and the implications of this and how it moves forward. But basically, the current web standards process is not very great at building the kind of web that we as programmers want, um, right? So like browsers implement something, it's standardized, then we write a JavaScript shim on top of it because it's terrible, right? So the idea is to invert that flow. So we like prototype new features in JavaScript 
And then when they were happy with them, they get standardized and then browsers implement them natively. So like, imagine if jQuery was a native browser plugin that automatically was downloaded instead of being JavaScript that we transfer on every single web page we go to. Um, that's sort of like one of the kind of moderate pitches, but you can check it out. And it's something I'll be talking a lot more about in the future um, is that and the implications of that. So that's my picks. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Steve. Really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's f- super fun, as always. Always right. good to talk to you. Yep, I've got a couple of uh, things, a couple of business items. First off, we are reading Functional Programming for the Object-Oriented Programmer by Brian Merrick. And then we also have our silver sponsor, and that is Elixir Sips. So you can go get them at elixirsips.com um, and let them know that you heard about them on Ruby Rogues. What do they do? Uh, it's a screencast series, kind of like Ruby Tapas. Ah, but for Elixir, cool. Yes, and it's a it's a paid thing. I think it costs about the same as Ruby Tapas. So can I just say I never thought we would top the acronym Pooter, but it makes me so happy that we're reading F poop now. (laughs) (laughs) That does it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next week.